There are few things that human beings are more drawn to than fighting. There are few things human beings are more drawn to than fighting. Think about it. You know, three out of every four movies that come out right now are Marvel movies, right? And what are Marvel movies? It's just a big fight, right? That's all it is. There's no narrative. There's no themes. It's just a big fight, right? It's a spectacle. Uh, You know, most of our great works of literature, though, are about fighting. The Iliad is just one battle scene after another. War and Peace is kind of in the title, right? Uh, The Lord of the Rings, all about fighting. Even Harry Potter is about fighting. I mean, many of you are counselors. How much therapy would those children need to go through throughout the rest of their life? It'll be a fight for the rest of their life. The most popular sport in America is what? Football, which is just a big fight. And, you know, we're seeing it, you know, right now with the Broncos. There seems to be fighting behind the scenes quite a bit. Uh, Our political discourse today has devolved into a giant fight, a war of words. Uh, Companies fight for market shares. We've even used the words for, for various aspects of our lives. We battle with depression. We battle with addiction. The language of fighting, battling, warring, killing is ubiquitous in our cultural imagination. But I've also noticed something. In the Christian language, it is all but evaporated. It's all but evaporated. Maybe it's because we're a little bit concerned about ever being associated too closely with, you know, Christian soldiers of the Crusades and other religious conflicts. Maybe because we're increasingly anxious around anything that might be too masculine in the Christian narrative and language. I don't know what it is, but it appears to me that we don't talk very much about fighting at all. However, if you look back at classic Christian writers, that seems to be all they would talk about. Pilgrim's progress is what? One fight after another until Pilgrim reaches a place he's fighting for the celestial city. The Puritans especially were very comfortable using language around fighting and waging war with what? With sin. One of my favorite lines in all of Christian literature is by a guy named John Owen. We have two boys in our church named after the guy. And he wrote a book on um, putting to death sin, the mortification of sin. And he said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. You know, the Bible is very comfortable using language around conflict. All of the Old Testament narratives that are foreshadowing of Christ's triumph over sin and death are all battles. God wages a war with Pharaoh by sending plagues to liberate his people. David fights Goliath as a typological representation of Christ who will conquer the far greater giant, death himself. The psalm we read today in almost all of the psalms, David is in a conflict with people and in a conflict with himself. And he's longing for the victory of God. Jesus wages war with sin, death, and the devil as he conquers the spiritual forces of the world upon the cross. Paul uses language around fighting, killing, boxing to describe the Christian life. Today, as we continue in our series on on, uh, the practices of the beloved, the practices of the disciple, we're going to talk about fighting. Not fighting with other people, 
but fighting with sin. The significance of not giving in to a, a belief that we can be neutral with sin. In the Christian life, there is no Switzerland. In the Christian life, there is no neutrality. In the Christian life, it is kill or be killed. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And today I want to ask us all a question. What sin in our lives have we just given up hope of beating? What sin in our life have we given up hope of fighting because we have lost battle after battle? And to remind you today that the Lord Jesus Christ calls you to pick up the sword of the Spirit yet again and to wage war yet again with the sin that is in your life that is killing you. And so I want to look at two things today from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. First, the call of the Christian is to be a Christian soldier, to fight with sin. And then second, I want to look at the reality that we don't fight in our own strength, we don't fight in our own power, but we fight in the very power of God as we put on the armor of God. So if you would, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You know, what matters with whom you fight. If members of a team fight with each other, you know you're going to lose, right? That's probably what we're mostly concerned about with the Broncos right now. What's happening in the locker room, Right? They don't seem to like each other a bunch. We're not going to win until they do, right? We know that. Uh, friendly fire in war is one of the most hard things for any person to deal with because you harm your friends. You harm the people that you're actually trying to protect. It matters with whom you fight. And so much of the Christian life, our energy is wasted fighting each other. You know, so often we think that we need to be the great, you know, heresy hunters, right? Or, or find a way to deconstruct all of our issues as really being about someone else. But the call of the Christian isn't to fight other people. The call of the Christian is to fight with sin. J.C. Ryle, and probably my favorite book written by Ryle, he was the Bishop of Liverpool. He wrote a book called Holiness. I'd recommend it to all of you. He says this, with whom is the Christian soldier meant to fight? Not with other Christians. Wretched indeed is that man's idea of religion who fancies that it consists in perpetual controversy. That sounds like a blogger in the modern day evangelical world. Seems to be all they know how to do. He who is never satisfied unless he is engaged in some strife between church and church, chapel and chapel, sect and sect, faction and faction, party and party, knows nothing yet as he ought to know. No doubt, it may be absolutely needful sometimes to appeal to law courts in order to ascertain the right interpretation of a church's articles and rubrics and formularies. That's the Anglican lingo of, yes, yeah, sometimes we have to actually get in fights. Sometimes. But as a general rule, the cause of sin is never so much helped as when Christians waste their strength in quarreling with one another and spend their time in petty squabbles. No, indeed, the principal fight of the Christian is with the world, the flesh, and the devil. 
These are the never-dying foes. These are the three chief enemies against whom he must wage war. Unless he gets the victory over these three, all other victories are useless and vain. If he had a nature like an angel and were not in a fallen creature, the warfare would not be so essential. But with a corrupt heart, a busy devil, and an ensnaring world, he must either fight or be lost. This is your story. This is my story. So often... What do we do? We fight with each other. We fight with our spouse that really it's them that's causing us to sin. We fight with our parents. It's really them that's causing us to sin. We fight with one another. And there are times in which we have been truly harmed by others. I'm not trying to diminish that. But so often we spend our energy and our strength waging war with other people when we're actually called to wage war with sin, the flesh, and the devil. These are the enemies that we are called to fight. These are the enemies that will always be on the prowl seeking to destroy us until the very day that Jesus calls us home. There is no rest for the Christian. There is no victory this side, or, or final victory this side of Christ's final victory. It doesn't mean that we can't have increasing victory over sin. I'm not saying that. In fact, righteousness does do something interesting. It actually diminishes the grip of sin in our lives, but it will always be there until we are brought home. But it's interesting. You know, when we look at the scriptures, when we think about sin, it's, it's kind of combined in a couple different ways. It's the Christian church has always talked about it as sin, the flesh, and the devil. Because sin is like our volitional sin, but that volitional sin is compounded by the law. Romans 7 says, you know, we fight it and it fights us. The flesh is our corrupt nature, which is bent in on itself and longs for evil and our desires over God. But then we also have this reality of the devil that we don't like to talk about, that we actually have an enemy that is bent on our destruction, that is bent on perverting and destroying God's good and perfect world. And that there is no truce with the devil. This is what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 6 when he says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood with other people, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That You know, the rulers and authorities, that's not talking about our governor or our president. That is talking about the demonic forces of the world. So often we think about the demonic as like, you know, just like a, a, a little creature like going around trying to pester you and, and lead you into sin, right? And, and there are actually, the scripture does talk about an individuation of the demonic. However, when Paul talks about the demonic, he's looking, he pulls the camera back and he looks at cosmic forces, systemic forces, realities that blind us to our own sin and lead us into greater sin. And, you know, I think I could go down a laundry list of these and in different cultures and different times have different particular cosmic forces that are drawing people into sin that are particularly susceptible. But the one I can really think of that we are really blind to is our radical consumerism. What do we all know what do we all know deep down? That next thing that we get will not make us happy. 
that next raise that we are fighting so hard for isn't going to satisfy us. Every story of every wealthy person has shown us it doesn't make you more content. Every Christmas we have ever had since childhood screams at us. That thing won't make you happy. Every new car that we've ever gotten, whether it was new to you or brand new, shows us that's not going to make you happy. But what do we do anyway? We still run to it. That's a cosmic power in your life. That's a demonic force in your life. If you know that you know that you know, that's not going to do anything for you, but you do it anyway. You are under what is called deception. You are under a cloud of the devil's work in your life. And you can go to that in all kinds of different areas, right? With our anger, with with sex, with, with whatever it is. You know that you know that you know it's not going to make things better, but you run to it anyway. Who do you think is leading you and nudging you along, capturing your flesh, capturing your heart that is bent against God and pushing you, nudging you in subtle ways to greater and greater sin? Family, you have an enemy and I have an enemy. And there is no rest in our war against him. Ryle says it again like this, where there is grace, there will be conflict. The believer is a soldier. There is no holiness without warfare. It is a fight of perpetual necessity. It admits of no breathing time, no armistice, no truce. Each and every one of us have areas of our lives where we are led into greater sin and deception. And it is because there are cosmic forces capturing our fallen hearts. Yes, it is your volitional sin, but you also have an enemy that is guiding you further and further into it. You know, there was a man named Neville Chamberlain. Does anyone remember that individual? Neville Chamberlain. Neville Chamberlain, you know, he's kind of famous or infamous for building uh, what is a political or political uh, engagement called appeasement. And Neville Chamberlain was the man that said, hey, that Hitler guy, he's kind of bad, but I think we can contain him. If we just ignore him long enough and kind of say, okay, well, Poland's kind of, we lost Poland and we lost a few other places, but, you know, we can't afford a war. But then there was this other guy, my relative, Winston Churchill, certain claim to fame and infamy, distant relative Winston Churchill from the Suits family. He was like, absolutely not. We have to go kill this guy. We have to go kill this guy. That's our only option. We have to fight this guy. And everyone said, ah, Churchill, he's still pretty bummed out that he wasn't that great in World War I. He's kind of making, trying to make a name for himself. We probably should ignore him. He's a, you know, he's a bit bombastic, right? Some of that might've been true, but he was a million percent right about Hitler. When we look back, if being a Chamberlainite or being Churchillian, you definitely want to be on Churchill's side of things. But what do we do with sin all the time? We try to contain it. We try to live with it. We say, as long as I can just kind of put this fence around this one sin that I've been losing to over and over again, we can just ignore it and cherish it and hope nobody ever talks to us about it. But the only response to sin is the heart of Churchill. 
The only understanding of sin that Paul had was a fight. They understood. Jesus understood. Paul understood. Peter understood. John understood. The great leaders of the church have understood that if you don't go about killing sin, it will go about killing you. There is no containing it. It is like a fire that spreads, and it's bent on your destruction. So often we want to think it's, it's what we cherish. It's what we love. How could it actually be harmful to me? But deep down, we also know that there is no sin that isn't destructive. There is no sin that doesn't want to kill you. There is no sin that is not bent upon your destruction. And so my question for you, my challenge for you today is, what is that sin that you need to look at again and pick up the sword of the spirit yet again and wage war yet again? I understand that many of us have felt like we have lost time and time again, and so we've given up. But there is no giving up. There is no giving up. Yes, one day you will be freed entirely. I'm not saying that is a given or a a possibility. It is a fact. But between now and then, the Lord has a greater freedom for you, but we have to fight for it. Now let's look at that reality. We don't merely fight against sin, but we fight for holiness. We fight for something. We don't go about killing sin simply for fear that it's going to kill us, but because we actually want to fight for a greater freedom in Jesus Christ. Look back at Ephesians 6 with me. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you may extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all uh, the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. The first thing we have to realize, and I'm, I'm running out of time here, is we don't wage this war in our own strength. We don't. We don't have the strength to wage it. We don't have the power to fight sin. Rather, in verse 10, we see, finally be strong where? In the Lord and in the strength of his might. You know, uh, I'm a little brother. I'm the youngest child. And there are times in which we have to call upon our older brother to fight our battles for us. And that is the Christian faith. We're all youngest children that call upon our older brother, Jesus, to say, I can't fight this. I need you to fight this one for me. How many of you have been there saying, I can't fight this one. I need you to fight this one for me. 
We don't fight sin in our own strength. Too many of us have tried to do it, and too many of us have failed and therefore given up. But it was a fool's errand to begin with. You aren't strong enough in your own. David couldn't slay Goliath on his own. It was only by the hand of God. Now, how does our older brother fight the battles for us? Well, he fights the battles for us when he breathes upon us his spirit. And when he breathes upon us his spirit, who wills within our willing, acts within our acting, fights within our fighting, he clothes us, equips us with the armor of God. And all of it's indispensable. You can't have a little bit of the armor of God and not all the armor of God. Because if you leave a chink in your armor, kind of like smog, you know, with a little arrow, you got to have it all. So what is the armor? The belt of truth. You can't fight sin outside of truth. That's, that's one of the great sins of our age. I can pursue righteousness, but I can give up the truth of the Christian faith. You can't. We are all called to submit our whole lives under the truth of Jesus Christ. And only then can we fully surrender ourselves to his protection over us. The breastplate of righteousness. You know, whenever we talk about righteousness in the Christian faith, we have to talk about it in two ways. First and foremost, it's the righteousness of Jesus for us. That's objective, done, completed. You are protected by his righteousness. In the eyes of God, you are righteous. And what does he do? He covers over your, your most precious organs, your lungs and your heart to say no arrow can pierce it. No scheme of the evil one can ever take that righteousness of Jesus from you. But what else do we mean whenever we talk about righteousness? We talk about actually living a Christian life. Now you always have to remember, Christ's righteousness will cover you. You are not brought into heaven by your righteousness. You aren't. Rather, you are given greater freedom today by righteousness that the Spirit is working in you. That's the righteousness we're fighting for today. You're already guaranteed a place with our Lord. I think we diminish that, that we have assurance. But today we are offered a freedom that comes by righteousness being lived out in our lives because living a righteous life actually leads us into greater freedom and life than living in the unrighteousness of sin. And that protects our heart. I love this one. The shoes of peace of the gospel. Carrie's going to preach on this much more next week because she's going to preach on, this week we're preaching on fighting. Next week we're going to preach on living but how do we walk in this life? We walk in the peace that only comes from the gospel. The shield of faith that extinguishes flaming darts. I was reading Calvin's commentary on this, and he just so beautifully points out, why did Paul talk about flaming darts? Why didn't he just talk about darts? Because so often, the dart that is flaming, the dart that is on fire, the way that the devil attacks us, is he tries to undermine faith. Where does sin often come from? The undermining of faith. The, per, the, the leading us into doubt. That God doesn't actually love us. That my sin is too great. Surely my father in heaven has turned his back on me. The most penetrating darts that are hurled at the Christian are the darts of doubt. And what are we given the shield of faith. 
to turn our eyes to Jesus, to turn our eyes to the cross, to say, no, he has died for me and he will never forsake me. The Christian life is shielded from the darts of the devil by the shield of faith. The helmet of salvation. What a word, salvation. Remember that yes, we are in a battle, but the salvation is never in question. You've already been given the helmet of salvation. And so often, what does the devil do? He tries to extend a death blow to us on our heads. But what protects the head? The assurance that you have been saved in the Lord Jesus Christ and nothing can pluck you out of his hand. And then finally, the, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The reformers always remind us that the work of the spirit is never divorced from the word of God. The one offensive weapon that the Lord gives us is a sword, the sword of the spirit that is enlivened, uh, that enlivens the word of God in our lives. The one offensive tool that we have against the devil is to be saturated in, steeped in the living word of God. Because God's word comes alive how? When the spirit moves us to faith. And this becomes much more than just words on a page. It becomes Jesus's direct address to his people. If you have sin in your life that you are battling, if you have sin in your life that you aren't battling and have given up on and want to pick up the sword yet again, you can't do it outside of a life of being saturated in God's word. In your morning walk, choose to listen to God's word over that podcast. Choose to listen to God's word over the talking heads on television. Choose just about anything over that, to be honest. Choose God's word because God's word is the very thing that repels Satan in your life and gives you life. I know that many of you are facing these days in your hearts where you feel like you're going to give up on battling because you just don't know. You, you don't know if you can win. You feel defeated in your life. My prayer for you is that you would pick up the sword yet again in the power of the Spirit and choose to wage war yet again. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we know that you are with us. We know that you are guiding us to our eternal home. Lord, we know that you are for us. Lord, would you give us confidence and boldness and a conviction to fight sin yet again, knowing that you are the one that has overcome sin and will overcome sin. You are the one that will fight this battle for us. Lord, give us faith. Give us courage. Give us conviction to fight yet again to the glory of your name.